The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, a podcast dedicated to the weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who knows better than to get cocky after almost winning a trial by combat. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with an in-depth discussion on Game of Thrones. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on two episodes of Fargo and two episodes of Orphan Black, and maybe even a few more things. But before we get into all that excitement, we've got news with Nico. LeVar Burton's Reading Rainbow Kickstarter exceeds $1 million goal. In just two days, LeVar Burton's Reading Rainbow Kickstarter has gone twice as high. After reaching its $1 million goal in less than 24 hours, the campaign has gone on to earn $2 million since then and is nearing $3.5 million currently. Burton's vision for updating his beloved children's TV show is to turn it into a web series and make it available to any child with internet access. In this iteration, Burton will offer a brand new library of interactive books and video field trips, as well as a classroom version. Not only that, he's but he's subsidizing costs so that schools in need can use Reading Rainbow for free. You can still support Burton's Kickstarter ending July 2nd by clicking on the link in the ACC feed now. I was a fan of this when I was a kid. Oh, me too. So this is pretty awesome. Kind of great way to promote kids into reading. Because it, it's kind of scary with all the media stuff we have out right now. And all the media access if kids are still really reading. So this is a great way to promote them reading through using the internet and all those media resources. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a good thing for, for everybody involved. And I love that LeVar Burton is so much behind this. And he's yes. so, so gung-ho about it. This is all on him. He is the one that is the driving force behind re- revising the show and, and bringing it up to date. And getting it back on the air. It's not going to be on the air, per se, but it's going to be on the internet, which I think is is better anyway, because it's going to be much more when the child needs it, when the parents want it. They can go to the episode that they want, or they can go to the, the book that they want to see talked about and read and all that fun stuff, and they don't have to worry about when it's going to be on PBS or when it's going to be on TV. So I think this is going to work out so much better, and I just hope it's such a, a huge success with the next generation that he does this for the next 20 years because that would be the real testament to how much this is loved by it and i love that this reached its its funding goal in 24 hours because that shows how important it was to not only you and i but our entire generation of girl when we were growing up yeah glad i mean lavar burton i know him for for star trek and reading rainbow so yeah exactly but uh, yeah good for him though it's great stuff 
Boardwalk Empire's Charlie Cox cast as Daredevil for Marvel slash Netflix series. Marvel has found its man without fear. British actor Charlie Cox, whose credits include Stardust and Boardwalk Empire, has landed the title role in Marvel's Daredevil Netflix series. Latino Review first reported they were hearing rumblings of Cox's casting, which were then confirmed by Variety. Daredevil is the first of Netflix's five upcoming Marvel series, including Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, and finally, The Defenders, which will unite all the characters. In an update since originally publishing the article, Marvel have now announced Cox's casting themselves, along with a quick official description for the 13-episode series. Blinded as a young boy, but imbued with an extraordinary sense, Matt Murdock fights against injustice by day as a lawyer, and by night as the superhero Daredevil in modern-day Hell's Kitchen, New York City. That's got me excited. Yeah, this is a good casting. I think Charlie Cox is a, a really good pick for this i think it's going to be this one really needs to shine daredevil needs to yes. really be good the movie was not so great when it came out with ben affleck but you know if if they want all these other netflix shows to really hit it daredevil has to knock it out of the park first and well, then the other the ones can well follow. yeah exactly and that's why it needs to be really really well done and i think charlie cox is a great choice for for the cast. Well, you get somebody that's been on HBO or HBO television. Mm-hmm. That really adds a nice dose of quality to this Daredevil show. Yeah, I think so. Now I'm wondering, since it is going to be Netflix, whether this is going to be a little more intense, if it's going to be PG-13, if it's yeah. going to be wh- what what their idea for that is. Because they don't have to worry about network censors, but they do want to be make it, you know, kid friendly because kids are the next generation for comic books. So I, I really wonder how dark they're going to go or how in-depth they're going to go and how adult-oriented it's going to be or if it's going to be more kid-oriented or try and split the difference. I think the darkness is going to be like Arrow okay. to that degree. Does that, yeah. Is that good enough for kids? Yeah, I, I figure it. The, the idea is that they're going to try and make it so that if it ever, if they ever wanted to, they could show it reruns on TV and not have to right. radically change the show. So I agree. Danny McBride to return to HBO in Vice Principal's comedy. Things are looking up for fans of Eastbound and Down. Eastbound star Danny McBride will return to HBO in a comedy called Vice Principal's. The network announced Wednesday. The series, described as a sitcom about a high school and the people that almost run it, is from McBride and his Eastbound collaborator Jody Hill. The series is slated for 18 episodes and debut date and number of episodes per season has yet to be determined. So far, they said 18, but that hasn't been a firm commitment. So we'll see when that comes out. I'm excited because I really like Danny McBride. Me too. Danny's other show was great. Oh, yeah. Very funny. Yeah. Hulu may rescue community. Kind of feeling this is coming. Less than three weeks after NBC dropped the axe on community, there is talk of a possible season six, though at a new home. Deadline is reporting that the preliminary talks are being held between Sony Pictures Television, which produces community, and the streaming video service Hulu to deliver fresh adventures for the Greendale gang. Series creator Dan Harmon reportedly would be involved in the possible continuation, as he had indicated earlier this month, saying he won't be lukewarm about such an 
idea. I'm not going to be the guy that recancels canceled community. The salvation scenario would be akin to how Netflix plucked the cult hit comedy Arrested Development, whose corpse, of course, had grown much colder than communities, from the ashes and funded production of a new batch of episodes. I'm excited by this news, but preliminary talks are a long way from actually getting this done, so I won't hold my breath just yet, but still excited. Well, actually, community did quite well on Hulu. A lot of people were watching it there. Right. God, they were getting some solid sponsors for community. It was one of the few shows on Hulu you could watch commercial-free because they had sponsor backing. So that seems like, to me, it was quite successful there. Yeah. So this I, may work out. I hope so. Number of Nielsen families that fuel TV ratings to grow significantly. Nielsen, a.k.a. the ratings people, has announced a plan to increase the number of sampled households by a significant measure over the next two years. Among the local people meter markets, that is, households that report viewing habits in part by using electronic people meters, Dallas, Washington, D.C., Houston, Miami, and Denver will see an increase of 200 homes this year, while Charlotte, St. Louis, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Boston, Atlanta, and Phoenix will will each add 200 homes in 2015. The two largest local people meter markets, New York and Los Angeles, will have their sample size increased by 300 homes next year to about 1,300 apiece. The above changes represent an average of 30% increase in sample size. In the 31 set meter markets, those in which TVs are hooked up to a gizmo that allows the study of viewing habits on a minute-by-minute basis, Nielsen, over the next two years, will expand the sample by 200 homes in each market or to more than 6,200 homes, an increase of almost 50%. This is a move in the right direction, but in my opinion, still leaves the number way too small to get an accurate rating of what people are actually watching and interested in. But it is a step in the right direction. Yes, it is. But will they ever get it right? I don't know. It without without looking at everybody's ratings, I it's always going to be a guesstimate. Yep. Game of Thrones favorite joins Star Wars Episode 7 cast. I like this. Game of Thrones warrior Brienne of Tarth landed a role in the ridiculously anticipated Star Wars 7. Lucasfilm has announced that Gwendolyn Christie, who joined Game of Thrones er- early in Season 2, will appear in the first film of the new Star Wars trilogy, as will Academy Award winner Lupita Nyong'o from 12 Years a Slave. Currently filming in Abu Dhabi, Star Wars Episode 7 is slated to hit theaters December 18th, 2015. Two great female casting choices there. Just excellent. Can't wait for this film. I'm, I'm getting more excited every week, every time they announce something new, every time a new picture is leaked from the set. Oh, Mark Hamill fighting with Jedi Mickey in a promo. That was yeah. awesome. Just everything. It's just so... So awesome. Well, Gwendolyn Christie, I hope she's a Jedi. She'd make that an would awesome be awesome. Jedi. That would be awesome. I'm hoping so. That I mean, that, that would be just awesome. Because she'd be a knight in Game of Thrones and a Jedi in Star Wars. Yes. How awesome is that? Oh, so excited for this movie. Well, I, I like the casting of uh, Lupita Nong. That's how to say her name. Yeah, I'm, I wasn't 100% sure on how to pronounce it. it it's tough. <laughs> I, I hope she's a major character. Yeah, you know, she did so well in 12 Years a Slave. And obviously, she won an Academy Award. Right. But And she checks two of those check boxes for people who were complaining about not casting females or right. diversity. And she's a great choice. And not, not just because she checks those boxes. She's a great actress. So she checks yeah. a whole lot of boxes for this film. 
Chase, I, I don't want her to be the Lando of the series. I, I, I don't think in the modern era that that will happen. Okay, that's very good. Yeah. I'm excited. This is just... They're making this movie for the fans. Oh yeah, I, I think it, I think we are rightfully excited. Yeah. Although I was super excited before episode one, and I kind of felt like going into it at the last second. I had that fanboys moment when I turned to my buddy and I was like, "What if it sucks?" <laughs> but I'm I'm not. I think JJ Abrams had that experience himself. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's gonna help. Yeah. You know, when Star Trek, the revamp happened, I think J.J. cemented himself as always getting the benefit of the doubt for me. I mean, I loved a lot of his TV shows, but when I saw that, I was like, yeah, this guy gets it. This guy is one of us. And he wasn't a fan of Star Trek. I know. I know. That's what makes the Star Wars even better is that he is a huge Star Wars fan. He wasn't a Star Trek fan. Right. So this is going to be good. Yeah, yeah. And it's, the casting is great. Do you get Harrison Ford in it? Mm-hmm. That says quality right there. Yep. Because he wouldn't do it if it's going to suck. Well, I well, mean, he did, do, he did do Indiana Jones 5 or 4. I mean, right. 4. That was awful. <laughs> but I think he realized that as well. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm just, it's, oh, I'm so excited. Jared Leto rumored for Doctor Strange. The latest item from the Hollywood rumor mill places Academy Award winner Jared Leto from Dallas Buyers Club and Requiem for a Dream on Marvel's radar for their upcoming Doctor Strange movie. It'd be interesting. Badass Digest reports that Marvel. Marvel likes Leto for surgeon-turned-sorcerer Stephen Strange. Recently, Leto took home the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Dallas Buyers Club. If Leto signs on, it would be an odd choice for the art house actor whose last big studio film was Lords of War 10 years ago. And then, before that, 2002's Panic Room. Yesterday, it was reported that sinister director Scott Derrickson was in talks to direct the film. Marvel declined to comment, but Derrickson tweeted out a picture of himself with a Doctor Strange comic, stating that it would be his next project. Jared Leto is amazing, and I could see him as Doctor Strange. I really could. This could be very interesting and a really really good choice if Marvel goes with him. Well, a lot of Doctor Strange stories are pretty trippy. Uh-huh. With it being in Record Room and what that was like, yeah. it could be perfect. I think it would be right up his alley, and that's why I'm thinking this is such a great, great choice. I mean, it's not official yet, it's just a rumor, but if it does end up being true, I think it'd be a great move on Marvel's part. Getting a quality, kind of quirky actor like Leto to come in and play this kind of quality and quirky character so it, it'd be interesting well there's always a knock on dr strange that he is tony stark but instead of machinery he's good with magic yeah and this would make him casting jared leto would make him very different than iron man yeah absolutely and i think that's what they need to do for the film so that's the way to do it yeah i, I agree because he doesn't look like robert downey jr at all so not you're good not, yeah exactly and that's the news with nico for this week all right well let's dig into this game of thrones episode that seems to be on its way towards really hyping things up I feel like this was like the penultimate episode for some characters. Got others, it's just going to set up for where their story is going to go over the next couple weeks. So let's take it to the Game of Thrones episode that had a very shocking ending, which some people kind of knew was coming, but if you didn't read the books, it was shocking as well. The Mountain and the Viper.
Unexpected visitors arrive in Molestown. Littlefinger's motives are questioned. Ramses tries to prove himself to his father. Tyrion's fate is decided. This week's episode starting out with the events of Ygritte sparing Jilly's life in the Wildling attack on Molestown. Got a nice watchman expressing their concerns about being outnumbered. Got to be really excited to see a battle between the Wildlings and the Night's Watchmen, similar to what we got in the Season 2 penultimate episode, where Stannis attacked King's Landing. Nico are the producers of Game of Thrones to come through on giving us this epic battle. Can will Sam and John come up with a brilliant strategy that's going to even the odds against the Wildlings? Dan, we are set to have a massive battle on two sides of the wall that will hopefully make the Battle of the Blackwater at the end of Season 2 seem like a mere skirmish. It, it should be. Most certainly, we will see something huge, and it is Game of Thrones, so people will die, and that could include anyone yeah. and everyone we care about or can identify by name. So be ready for disaster and for heroes to emerge. It's going to be good. Also, you know Sam and John are going to be the ones to come up with a brilliant plan that will save the day for the Night's Watch. Well, maybe if the Night's Watch is successful. Remember, yeah. it is Games of Thrones. And they're going to come up. What they come up with is brilliant. Whether or not it works, that is for you to see in the episode coming up. Well, and they may have reasons why the outcome of the battle might be completely different than we think it's going to be. Like, I feel like there's going to be a twist in it. Oh, there's going to be a twist. I'm going to spoil that. I'm not going to say what the twist is, but there's I mean, going to be a twist. I mean, I feel like it's not going to be very, it's not going to be black and white. It's going to be epic. It's going to be huge. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to just work. It is very well done in the books, and I'm thinking it's going to be very well done here. Because I feel like John and Sam will be like, wait a minute. Maybe both sides don't necessarily need to survive. I don't know. It's something crazy is going to happen. And I feel like it's got to be a whole episode dedicated to that battle. Well, I think the so reason big. it's going to be two episodes, I think it's going to go over the penultimate and the finale is okay. so that we can intercut with others, other places. Okay. And otherwise, yeah, I would say just go the entire penultimate at the wall and let that be done. And then the finale will wrap up all the other arcs, except for that we need to know Tyrion's fate. We need to know Daenerys and and Jorah and all the things we're going to talk about in a minute that happened in this episode that, as you said in the lead up to this discussion, it was a setup for a lot of characters today. So what, what happens to them? We need to know. So I think the way that they do that is they, they intercut the battle, this massive battle and this exciting and, and, really great battle going on at the wall and they intercut that with scenes and and things from all the other story arcs good i feel like some of the other story arcs are going to feel like boring next week it's definitely a a, a possibility when you match it up with a, a, an intense battle like that but that's kind of the way the entire story has been yeah. set up you have action and you have intrigue and you have all the backhanded deals and you have those going on at the same time and if you're more interested in in the action then some of the other stuff will drag for you but i think that's the epitome of what this story is it is both exciting with the massive battles or the really cool uh sword play and dragons of course and then on the other side you have the political intrigue you have the the suspense you have the love stories all of those things so you have that throughout the entire series so now in this final two episodes of this season you're going to get those intercut 
And if you're a fan of the whole show, then it's going to be great. And if, if you, some of those things you're not such a big fan of, I know we've had issues with Reek and that entire story arc. Yeah. You know, some of those things may feel like they're dragging extra long because you have this massive battle going on on the other side. So I can see that definitely. But again, with Tyrion's story, that's very engaging. Oh. <laughs> so that'll match up just fine. Yeah, that's going to be really cool. Okay, I think there's stuff coming with Guardian Knight if they get to it this season. That'll match up very well also. Yeah, I, n- I don't know how much they're going to get in the last two episodes. I hope they're going to do at least the setup for where he is in season five. Yeah. So definitely, there's definitely some good stuff coming on that front. Good stuff coming on the Stannis front along with the Onion Knight, Melisandre. Good stuff coming from the Danny arc, even though I've said quite a few times that it does drag and it does get, you know, a little bit boring, but it pays off in the end. So when when that pays off, whether it's going to be late in season five, into season six, we don't know. Because a lot of what I thought was going to drag on happened this season. And I was like, whoa, they're they're knocking through some of this stuff in the Danny story. I mean, Jorah getting dismissed, as we'll talk about in a moment. Wow, I did not expect that this season. I thought that was going to come later in the season. And we'll discuss that in a minute. So they picked up the pace. A little bit, yeah. But there was one weird part with Danny's story this week. And that was the Sermon Masande, and Grey Worm kind of having a relationship, yeah. which I know we said wasn't possible because he's a eunuch. Yeah. But I don't know if, like, HBO didn't get the memo on that. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing here, Nico? And could it be meant for relevance in a future book? Or was this just an excuse for HBO to throw in some nudity? I just don't know, Dan. This is not a book-based story arc at all. And I think it is merely to give the otherwise slow-moving marine story arc some intrigue and sex appeal and add another love story to the mix. This could be something important coming in the later books, but I just don't see that as realistic. So my guess is that it was just an excuse to see the actress Natalie Emanuel, who plays Masandi's boobs in an episode. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. Well, it was the point they picked it up anyway in this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it's slow. I mean, I kind of know. That kind of stuff makes me nervous about the show. Well, I, I just jokingly, is when it happened, I was like, boobies! <laughs> that was all it was. It was boobies. Well, you kind of have to do that with this show. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. I just hope they don't go true blood on us. Because uh, I have a cousin who's a big fan of the books. Mm-hmm. Got the show at one time. God, let's just say the show went way off the reservation. Yeah, I don't think this show has that problem. I don't think they're going to have that problem because... They have enough material. They have enough material. Plus, they also, they would tick off an entire yeah. group of people that are the reason that this is the number one ever HBO show. Yeah. Viewed HBO show. So, I think that they got to be careful with that. And I, I think they're cognizant of that. Plus, the two show creators are huge fans of the books. Right. And they don't want to differ from the books too much. There are things that they do bring in. There are things that are make it television as opposed to a novel. George likes to ramble on for 20 pages about what was for dinner. You can do that in 30 seconds on, on screen just by showing the, the extravagance. But, you know, so... I think a lot of the changes, changes, even though we've raised eyebrows, got some of them have ultimately turned out to be the best for the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all panic and then it turns out to be okay. So, so far. Yeah, now this could just be setting up a, rather than a real true romance, a 
a friendship or some something important that binds these two together for a future story arc that I just don't know about yet. Or makes us care about them so we may get killed and shot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or when yeah, when one of them dies, there's someone other than just the audience who feels the pain, you know. That will that'll be it's T V. There needs to be some sort of driving force behind the drama. Right. Well, continuing with Marine, Nico already kind of touched upon it. The, the issue of Sir, Sir Jorah being a spot. Again, for me, I kind of thought this was resolved back in the second season with the whole incident with the poisonous wine. Could he stop Danny from drinking it? But I guess it wasn't handled, so this was a surprise to me. Again, on that note, I'm really curious where Sir Jorah is going to end up moving forward. Again, if he really is going to go back to King's Landing. And will being told to leave put Danny in danger or trouble when it comes to her multiple suitors? Dan, so this totally happened differently in the books. Really? In the books, when the attack on Danny at the docks was thwarted by two strangers, a pair of people who saved her introduced themselves as Artisan Whitebeard and Strong Belwis and claimed that they had been sent by Ilio Mopatis, that fat guy from Pentos, with three ships to escort Daenerys and all her companions back to Pentos. Whitebeard, a Westerosi, mentions having seen Jorah fight at Pike and Lannisport, but Jorah finds him vaguely familiar but is not really able to recognize him. So Jorah distrusts the the duo, particularly Whitebeard, but nevertheless Daenerys accepts them into her service for saving her life. Now in the show, remember Sir Jorah instantly recognized and identifies Whitebeard as Barristan Selmy to the young queen, and Selmy quickly bows to proclaim his loyalty to her, explaining that in serving her, he hopes to make amends for his failure to protect her family in Robert's Rebellion, declaring that she is the rightful queen of the Seven Kingdoms, and he asks to serve in her queen's guard. That all happened, and when that happened, I was like, uh, how is that going to work when he later betrays or finds out and tells about Jorah? And so... Back in the books, Artisan Whitebeard is revealed to be Sir Barristan Selmy because he dispatched a would-be assassin with only a stick and a rock later before they attack Meereen when she's Remember when she gets lifted up on top of all the people and yeah. she's, you know, crowd surfing? One of the people was a one of the second sons who w- did not want to join her. He comes and tries to kill her, but Barristan Selmy steps in and and kills him with just a stick and a, a rock. Okay. Really, actually, pretty cool. Now, after this, Sir Jorah recognizes Whitebeard as Barristan the Bold and tells Danny that this is the man that betrayed her family to serve the Usurper. When she asks if Whitebeard is hers or the Usurper's man, he tells her that he would be hers if she will have him. He then tells how he took Robert's pardon and served with the Kingslayer and others as bad as him, and that afterwards the boy king had cast him aside and sent men after him to kill him when they dismissed him. Selmy realized he had to find his true king and then tells her that he had to keep his presence secret because there is a spy who has been informing on her since she wed Cal Drogo. Danny immediately recognized that it must be Ser Jorah and Ser Jorah affirms it to be true. He had been promised he could go home for this task. So Jorah pleads that he stopped sending reports long ago when he fell in love with her, and Daenerys decides to send them both on a dangerous mission into the sewers of Marine as both punishment and a chance at redemption. This all actually happens before the fall of Marine and was replaced in the show with the secret mission that Grey Worm went on before the fall of Marine. That's okay. what I thought was actually going to happen, and then I saw Grey Worm do it, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> what is going on? Finally, the the mission is successful. 
of course, and she right. takes Marine. And upon their return to court, Sir Barristan begs Daenerys forgiveness, and she gladly gives it. Jorah, however, insists that she owes him forgiveness on account of his love and history of service and faithful service. Although Danny wishes to forgive him, she knows that as long as he maintains this attitude, she cannot do so without undermining her own authority. So she banishes Jorah from her service, swearing to kill him if she ever sees him again. So he's crushed by her rejection, and he leaves. Heartbroken and exiled, Sir Jorah travels west, but not off into the sunset. So be heartened to know he will return to the story sometime. So we will see him again. But is he done for the season? Yes. Okay. We will not see him again until something that happens in the next two episodes comes to pass, and then the fallout of that happens. So we need th- the next two episodes to get to the point where he's then ready to then come back. So okay, I will I will tease it like that. I think the way the show did it was much less complicated. Got moved a little bit quicker. Yeah, the use of the the pardon appearing is a was an easy way to yeah. get to the same effect. And I agree. I think it is. I think the way it was set up in the books, if it had been followed that path the entire time, then it would have worked. Right. Well, it's easier to keep track of all the names when yeah. reading yeah, than watching true. it on TV. That is true as well. So that, that makes a difference there, too. But we got to the same point, and I think the payoff will be similar. So that'll be good. I'm hoping so, yeah. Because that's really how the show kind of goes is the road getting there is a little different, but the payoff comes through the right way. Yep. All the major plot points happen the same way just how we get there like you said the road is a little bit different right and that's a technique that they used in the lord of the rings and hobbit movies right as well yeah because that paid off very good too absolutely so they're in the right place okay next up uh, we checked in on theon or reek or whatever he's calling himself guys this identity identity crisis story is probably going to end up paying off in a way where i will warm up to it but right now i just don't like it because ramsey snow the guy annoys the crap out of me. <laughs> I mean, I want to squeeze the eyeballs out of his head. Drives me nuts. So, Nico, what do you, what do you have to share about this plot line? You know, not much, actually. This week was merely set up for Roose Bolton and Ramsey Bolton, not Snow anymore, as that happened this week, where the king legitimized the Bolton bastard and made him the firstborn heir. Sorry, so that was such important. an annoying son. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's important for the future of this show. So that wasn't just a little thing when they were up on the, yeah. the hill looking all over the north it was important also not really mentioned but alluded to in this episode was that the boltons are moving to winterfell to set up their quote new home i think they did say we're headed to a new home i think ramsey said that to reek that is where the next major arc with these characters will be will be at winterfell also an imposter will show up at winterfell claiming to be a stark so that will be fun as well and reek will be forced to play theon again so important stuff remember i said this playing Reek and Theon, or having Reek play Theon in this episode might be a problem. Yeah. Might start causing that subtle brain of his to uh, crack up. <laughs> oh, God. He's uh, going to start having an identity crisis, but it'll uh, be interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does get interesting. I, I, I will say it does get interesting. I did like the parallel between Ramsey seems to be after the same thing that Theon originally was after which was his father's respect Uh uh-huh so i did pick up on that parallel yeah which is interesting it's just the difference between the two fathers although they're both sort of harsh and unloving so it it definitely makes sense i don't know if that's important to anything later on but i did pick up on that okay 
And uh, speaking of characters, I'd say making a change, but not because they're going crazy. We went up to the Eerie, where little innocent sons of Stark shockingly made a power play by backing up Littlefinger's story of her aunt committing suicide, realizing that he's an enemy she doesn't want to have right now. Nico is the move that Sansa made in this episode. Got her wardrobe change of looking like the Wicked Queen from Snow White. Can indicate her that she's succumbing to the dark side. No, but she is growing up and beginning to lose some of naivetivity. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, she is no longer the little naive girl. That's how I want to say it. <laughs> there you go. Sansa finally quit whining and started conniving. Actress Sophie Turner hasn't always had the best material to work with. It just, it's not a character we loved in the first part of the story. Well, but that's, now, the, that's how it was supposed to be. Yeah, now she's really going to have a chance to show off her skills as an actress, and I'm really excited. Yeah. And this is a turning point for Sansa's character, and we may see some really great stuff coming in the next season. I can't say for certain because the book's focus turned away from Sansa a little bit further along this path, so I'm not sure where her story will go next season or beyond yet because there's only a little bit more that we actually have covered in the books. So next season, we may just only get a few scenes with her as it progresses, some more of Littlefinger's dastardly plans come out, and then it goes off to focus on other characters for the majority of the season. And then hopefully the sixth book will be out by then and I can read and find out what's going on. But she's not going dark, rather finally learning some of that court intrigue and how to play the Game of Thrones. And Littlefinger is her new tutor. So it's going to be interesting stuff regardless of where it goes. So she's going to become a little bit more, I guess, Marjorie-like. Yeah, yeah. Marjorie is is still somewhat sweet, like we expect right. Sansa to be, but she also knows how to play. She knows right. how to play the game, and she also knows how to manipulate and all that. Sansa's a little too naive for that yet, but, but she's, she's getting there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, she's getting there. She's going to get there, and, and every woman of the court needs a little bit of that. Right. So it's not going to be negative to her character or her development. This is something she would have learned eventually, or had to have learned Probably especially from her mother. Be, yeah. Yeah. Especially if she wanted to be queen. Yeah. It's going to be interesting <laughs> to see where this goes. Yeah. Got in her interviews, Sophie Turner is always very excited about the show and where it's going. So I have a feeling she's very excited to get to play a more ruthless Sansa. So I can't wait to see where that goes. Got speaking of characters losing their innocence, Arya gets on that path as well. As she started laughing when arriving at the Eerie to discover her aunt is dead. Because this is like the third time she has shown up at a place to be told the family member she's looking for is dead. But I'll admit I was right there laughing with her because the scene just gave this vibe of Arya and the Hound being Steve Martin and John Candy in trains, planes, and automobiles playing the two travelers who just can't get away from each other no matter how hard they try. Nico, did you have a similar sense of humor about this scene? Yep, I couldn't help but laugh right along with Arya as she busted out laughing at the end that she and the Hound had traveled all that way to see her aunt and she had died three days before arriving. Yes. The look on the hound's face was priceless, and the only thing that made it funnier was Arya doing exactly what the audience wanted to do, bust out laughing. Now, in the books, it is determined due to conditions in the countryside and the coming winter weather that they cannot reach the Ari, and they are forced to head back towards River Run to ransom her to Sir Brendan Tully, Caitlin's brother, instead. So this didn't actually ever happen in the books, but it's not a big deal. So maybe that's where they'll head next, but don't expect there to be a Stark family reunion because it doesn't happen in the books. Somehow, some way, these two sisters will not meet. Well, it didn't happen in the books anyway. I don't know if they'll make it something new in 
this uh it seemed like Littlefinger was leaving. Yeah, they are the plan was to move Robin and foster him at another place in the area still. But send him to one of the other noble families to have him trained, much like Theon was sort of fostered, even though he was a hostage, with the Starks. Or, as they said, Ned Stark was fostered in the Eyrie. So he grew up part of his life in the Eyrie while training and learning to become a knight and all that with some of the knights there, with John Aaron and some of those people. That's why they were such good friends. Yeah. And then ended up uh, marrying sisters. Yeah, I, I agree with that. that would, well, yeah, that's that's good information there. Yeah, I think Robert was was fostered in the Erie as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's I something think that's from the book. Met. I don't think they talked about it in the, in well, the I show. I thought they talked about that in the first. Did they? Season. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Now that yeah, okay. Yeah, good. I like the humor they threw in this. Yeah, it was good. Well, I just love Arya. I yeah. <laughs> she's such a great character. Well, and it, it, they, they've kind of had humor with her character all this season, so this was a nice way to maybe top it off, unless there's more to come. There might be. There might be. We just don't know. God, God this episode, it, they had several lines that made me chuckle throughout the episode. God, with that, for our continued thoughts on the plot line that's had us buzzing for weeks regarding Tyrion and his trial by combat. I really enjoyed how it was kind of set up by this great scene between Jamie and Tyrion that acted as a fun last hurrah for the brothers, but also gave great insight as great insight on Tyrion as a character with his fascination over his mentally challenged cousin Olsen smashing butts. Nico, what did you take away from this wonderfully affected scene? Yeah, this scene with Tyrion's chat with Jamie about their cousin, the Beatle Smasher, was exactly what we needed between these two. It fortified the bond between the two and reminded us that they are brothers, which might be laying groundwork for things to come up. Will Jamie stand idly by while his brother is set to be murdered? I think not, but how will he help? This scene reminded us of the love Jamie has for Tyrion and hopefully reminded him of that as well. It's a, it was an important scene. Yeah, I agree with that. It reminded me a lot of uh, what they do on Supernatural between the brothers on that show uh, before they, you know, would go into a final battle or something. Yeah, yeah. So I thought they accomplished it very well. And the, the beetle smashing thing was interesting. Yeah, that's not, that was made up for the, as far as I remember, I don't remember ever hearing about that. So I think it was made up for the TV show, but they did have a last meeting where they talked about things. So just that story was, I think, the art artistic license of the writer for this episode. Well, you know, Peter Dinklage made us buy it and it was funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. Kind of something about the name Olsen made it funny. Finally, as for the main event, the actual trial by combat, which was almost as painful to watch as the Blackhawks game. Again, like the Blackhawks game that took place. I was excited. I thought, you know, Oberyn had the mount on the ropes. He was good. And then he started getting cocky. And like the king scoring the goal. And over time, the mountain came back and stabbed Oberyn. Well, came back and basically squished the eyeballs out of Oberyn's head. So, how is Tyrion going to get out of this one? I don't know. And they better not pull a Ned Stark. That's all I have to say, Nico. Or I'm going to be ticked off. I mean, this is not good. But I appreciate you keeping it a surprise for me. Very good job on that one. Because I have a feeling after my spiel last week that it was very hard to keep your mouth shut on saying what was going to happen. It's often hard yes. <laughs> to not talk about what's going to happen or not get so excited that I, I, I let something slip. It's very much a Jedi effort on my yes. part. <laughs> You will not give that away. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, but 
I don't know how he's going to get out of this. With this show, just having a thing for killing characters, I'm scared. You should be scared. Yeah. Definitely, with the history of this show, you should be scared. Yeah. I, I knew I knew once he started getting cocky, he went, oh, yeah. no. You could, see, you could see it on Tyrion's face, too. Yeah. He's like, no, no, just just kill him. Kill him. And then, and then, yeah, the audience was watching it with their all looking at me like, uh-oh, this is good. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So what were your thoughts on the scene, Nico? Was there any differences from the book? I heard that there wasn't. Yeah, the, as many of the major plot points in the show, they were extremely faithful to the books. I mentioned this with the death of Joffrey, and now here with the death of Oberon Martell. This was very faithful. Essentially in the books, despite his enormous physical disadvantage, Oberon used speed and managed to wound the mountain several times and crippled him by finding chinks in his armor and severing his hamstring after the mountain tired from chasing him, exactly as we saw in this scene in the show. As Oberon prolongs Gregor's death, trying to wring a murder confession from him, the prostrated mountain manages to grab hold of Oberon and smashes his armored fist into Oberon's face. He kills him by dashing out his brains after destroying his teeth and knocking out his eyes. Almost exactly like that awesome, amazing, shocking scene at the end of this episode. I think the only thing that made the Oberon death scene even better for me this week was that it was immediately followed up by the Orphan Black episode from the night before when another character's head exploded at the as the closing scene of that episode. Amazing. Two head explosions in a single week? Are you kidding me? That's Nico, awesome. Nico watched too much Raiders as a kid. <laughs> really, to wrap it up, can we just give one last round of applause for Pedro Pascal for his performance as Oberon Martel all yeah. season long? Seeing Pascal Pascal playing him on screen really made him something special. This was a great performance. Unfortunately, he had to die because it's Game of Thrones yeah. and everybody dies. But he was a great character. I loved him. He served his purpose, sort of. Well, he played I mean, the scene perfectly for what it needed. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, his his acrobatic moves, all of that was perfect. This fit with the Red Viper. This is exactly the way the Red Viper would have fought. We will see. And he, made, and he made you angry that he died. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also thought his paramour's reaction was perfect, where she just, you know, if you, you don't know what I'm talking about, just watch that scene again. And her reaction when he dies, oh, it's exactly what all of us were feeling. So that's, yeah. that's an actress that's pretty well known. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's, She's been in a lot of things. Target. Yeah, second season of Human Target. So kind of, does that character continue or... They just not, not to my knowledge or remembrance, okay. but then again, other characters that are related to and family of Oberon become important in the next seasons as we go to Dorne in season five. Okay, will we see a wrap up to this Tyrion story by the end of the season? Yes, I believe so. Okay. I believe in the next two episodes we will see exactly what happens. What happens to Tyrion. Okay. Please don't die. <laughs> and not really anything else that we really needed to discuss this week, as much of it was straight yeah. out of the books or tied in well enough. I'm really looking forward to the battle up north next week and seeing where Tyrion goes now that he's been sentenced to death and how that, that will be carried out. I really can't discuss anything about that without spoiling things, so I'm I not understand. even going to try. So that's about it from my perspective. Really good episode, but as you said, it was a little bit of a setup for a lot of characters and a really big setup for Tyrion. Great. Okay, we're going to continue our discussions next week, and then the week after we may have a funeral for Tyrion or we may not. <laughs> I don't know. 
But that's going to be a sad day for me if that character dies. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, Game of Thrones, if if you have a favorite character, he's going to die. Oh, not that one, though. Uh, it's a possibility. That's all I'll say. Okay, and I'm going to stop putting Nico through that, <laughs> not wanting to spoil something. So let's go into the rundown. You're watching Sci-Fi's from Mondays, FX, and USA. Characters welcome. EMT, we know trauma. Yeah, we're going to kick things off this week with my review of the amazing BBC American clone series Orphan Black with the episode from last week entitled Knowledge of Causes and Secret Motion of Things. A rehab confidant betrays Allison, got threatened to expose the truth about Annalise's death, which caused Allison to go into a free fall on the eve of family day. The clones gather to contain the fallout. Since its very beginnings, Orphan Black has been a study of opposition. Sarah versus Beth, science versus religion, nature versus nurture, comedy versus drama. And while we weren't always aware of it, we've been watching the Leaky versus Dyad show for a few weeks now. Though this episode, Knowledge of Causes and Secret Motion of Things, brought that chapter of Orphan Black to a close when Donnie accidentally murdered Leaky just moments after Rachel had spared his life. Was Leaky's death bad luck, or was it the handiwork of that fateful bitch named Karma? All I know is that watching this episode a mere moments after the Game of Thrones 7th episode, where the mountain exploded the Red Viper's head, seeing Donnie blow Leaky's head clear off by accident in that final scene was one of the greatest moments of my TV viewing experience this year. Two heads exploding in the same night was just too good. From the moment he was introduced in season one, Dr. Aldous Leakey was a man of mystery. He was a scientist with power and influence thanks to his position within the dyad and his history with the cloning experiment. But we were never able to predict his moves because he always had his own agenda involving the clones. But it's become increasingly clear over the course of season two that Leakey wasn't necessarily the master of his own design. Last week we learned that Leakey may have may be far more nefarious than he'd seemed of late, with the revelation that he'd been responsible for a fire that killed several people, including Susan Duncan. And this week, we got the quick confirmation of that, all of which was cool and elevated Leaky as a big threat and made his growing showdown with Rachel this season all the more notable. Rachel told Paul in the last episode that her role in the Dyad group technically outranked Leaky's as the director of the Dyad Institute. If we want to look at this another way, Rachel personifies the business side of things while Leaky personifies the science side, and the two were locked in a mostly silent battle until Rachel's boss, Marion Bowles, played to perfection by the always wonderful Michelle Forbes, stepped in this week with the double cross. Rachel had the opportunity to meet with her father thanks to Mrs. S and Paul's fluid allegiances, and even after learning the truth about Leakey's involvement in her mother's death, she still chose to let him live rather than standing by and allow Marion's plan to get rid of him play out. If Leakey had just run off to parts unknown, it would have seemed odd, given how the season had been progressing. But having him pushed aside by a power player, Marion, we'd never seen before, it really didn't sit right. And the moment we kept following Leaky after he ran from the dyad, it felt obvious he was going to be killed. Yes, it being an accident on Donnie's part made it amazing, but it was not surprising that he died. The question arises, was Leaky ever really the threat we thought he was? I'm inclined to say no, that Leaky was just another pawn in this ever-expanding game of chess, 
But I also don't want to discredit everything that's happened so far just because Leaky was eliminated from the game by somebody as ignorant as Donnie, a man who thought he was participating in a long-term sociology study and had no idea that his wife was a clone. Orphan Black takes great pleasure in addressing the duality of human nature, and it's never once pretended to exist in a world drawn only in black and white. Instead, the series chooses to live on the fringes, not just of science, but of morality. This theme has been present throughout the series, which is why I found myself feeling conflicted during that final scene between Leaky and Rachel. Leaky wasn't necessarily evil or completely evil, just like Rachel, just like Helena, and just like every single other character we've come across so far, except for maybe Thomas which would explain why he's dead now. It's true that Leaky was a villain in the true sense of the word. He was often at odds with the clones, and he procured the tooth from Kara Lost when she was hit by that car, which is how the Dyad Institute acquired her stem cells that were used to treat Cosima. But he wasn't a villain for just the sake of being a villain. On Orphan Black, there's always something bigger, something more dangerous and mysterious looming up ahead. And although Leaky wasn't a member of the clone club, he did have a vested interest in its members' well-being, which sometimes gave off the appearance of them having an alliance. Without Leaky, what will become of the clones now? What does his death mean for Cosima? Will her treatment continue? She was, as I predicted she would be, rightfully pissed at Delphine for neglecting to tell her the truth about the origins of the stem cells used in the treatment, and she even kicked Delphine out of the lab. Unfortunately, Cosima's still dying, so Kira ripped out her own tooth to help her, which was an amazing act of bravery from that little girl. But will Rachel and the new Marianne and the big business of Dyad steamroll Cosima's treatment in another ploy to get Sarah and Kira? With Leaky out of the picture, will Marianne decide that Sarah's not worth the risk she poses and simply attempt to eliminate her? This new development raises so many questions about what we thought we knew and where we thought this season was headed. In fact, it potentially changes the entire trajectory of the story. It seems like such an orphan black thing to do in episode 7 of 10 that I don't even know why I was surprised when the gun went off and Leaky's brain matter splattered onto Donnie's car windows. Perhaps it was because most of the hour was one of Orphan Black's funnier episodes. That also may explain my finding that scene so amazingly awesome. Prior to the Rachel and Leaky interaction that set off the final few moments of this episode, I thought this review would be full of praise for the return of the hilarious comedy stylings of Allison and Felix. That, plus a big round of applause for the episode, finally giving us what I believe was the first interaction between Sarah and Allison we've seen all season. Orphan Black has purposely kept the clones apart this season, given each one her own storyline, but it looks like they're finally coming together just in time for a spectacular final arc, and someone somewhere must have been reading my reviews because the series even took things one step further and gave us Sarah pretending to be Allison, which is always a great time. I should have known better than to think Orphan Black would gift us with a purely comedic episode, but I am definitely grateful it gave us all that it did. Mixing black comedy with black drama prevents the story from getting too bogged down, and Orphan Black is currently one of the best shows on TV in terms of striking a balance between those two. Leaky's death, while humorous because it was freaking Donnie who took him out, was still a serious enough development to fill this episode's drama quota, and pairing it with the image of Vic falling headfirst into Allison's craft table, or of Felix lugging an unconscious and glittering Vic through the halls of the rehab facility while trying to hide him from Angie kept things light. God, I love this show. Alright, next we'll continue with my review of the amazing BBC American clone series Orphan Black with the second episode of our reviews, the episode from this week entitled Variable and Full of Perturbation.
Fuck. A new player in the Cloak Conspiracy, Convergence, got turns up at Felix's store, which sends him into crisis mode. Meanwhile, Sarah struggles with whether to surrender a crucial piece of leverage and strike a deal with Diane. Oh boy, is there anything Tatiana Maslany can't do? How about Tony, huh? Orphan Black took a big swing this week with the introduction of the trans clone, but I felt they really made it work. Do I even have to say a lot of that was due to Tatiana Maslany, who once more fully committed to crafting a distinct personality with unique traits, and one whom couldn't be more different than any of the clones we've seen before. You know it's going to be a crazy episode when two minutes in, you're already yelling, Oh my god, what? And this episode totally was, throwing you into the action with Tony and his friend Sammy, who'd been shot. But forget about that, because was that Tatiana Maslany with facial hair? Yeah. Needless to say, it took me a second to wrap my brain around what was going on, especially with Maslany's voice so drastically different. Also, how freaking weird was Tony and Felix making out? He may be her foster brother, but Felix and Sarah are so firmly established as siblings that seeing him kissing someone who looked like her was bizarre. Not to mention the entire gender-bending aspect of that situation, given Felix's sexuality and who Tony is. From what I've seen on the internet, suffice it to say, that kiss got a big reaction across the board. This show certainly isn't afraid of getting quirky, and then some, which is to its credit, of course. And having Tony actually call Felix sister kisser was a great way to wink at the oddity of the situation. Have I said yet in this review how much I love this show? The fallout from last episode was pretty damn entertaining. Donnie, the underwear-wearing drunken mess that he was, was very funny, as of course was Allison's reaction to it. And it's hard not to love their big, hey, we both kind of killed people, confession scene. If anything will put this marriage back on track, it's gotta be that, right? And I also have to praise the moment where Allison chastised Donnie for how badly wrapped Leaky's corpse was in his trunk. Remember a few episodes when I told you guys how much I love the Allison character? And, well, it's because of scenes like this and the comedy she brought to the show last week with the whole Victor Dick catastrophe in the making. The scene where Rachel discovered Sarah's ability to have a child was an accident and we saw her freaking out and smashing up her office was interesting. Was that just her imagination or something she did later when she was on her own? We were debating that here as we watched it as a group. Either way, her rage about this situation made it very ominous when she spoke to Ethan about rectifying his mistakes and really makes me fear for Kira. Paul's only had one notable episode this season, but despite not even being in this episode, we actually got some pretty intriguing hints of something bigger at work involving him. The suggestion from Tony's dead mentor that Paul may have another agenda opens the door to another element at play, given this hint of cooperation and a different agenda between two monitors, because I am assuming that Sammy was Tony's monitor. The introduction of Tony was a big leap for Orphan Black, but it worked thanks to Tatiana Maslany and the notable, if slightly unsettling, dynamic between Tony and Felix. Meanwhile, we got a lot of good material from Rachel, Allison, and Cosima, even as Cosima's final scene was a big cliffhanger and has me worried for one of the original clones as we saw number nine this week for Tatiana Maslany. Could they really kill off Cosima? I I could see it as a possibility. I don't want it, but I could definitely see it as a possibility. This week's Orphan Black took Weird to a new level in a fascinating manner. Again, I love this show. So join us next week for the penultimate episode of Season 2 entitled Things Which Have Never Yet Been Done. Next, we're going to move on to my review of the new FX series Fargo with the episode from last week entitled Who Shaves the Barber?
Melville looks for answers as Lester Wing has a number of his own. Molly and Gus endeavor to get past the delay of the investigation. A quick review this week on the first episode, but I did want to touch on an episode that saw Lester nearly transformed into the monster that Lorne dreamed he could be and established Malvo himself as all but unbeatable. The interesting thing that it did, it doesn't feel as though Lester has become an entirely new man. The truth is he has simply allowed himself to unleash the demon that always lived inside him, but he was too frightened to reveal. Malvo's gift isn't the ability to turn someone against their inherent nature, it's the capacity to unearth what's bubbling just below the surface. It's amazing the things that can give a person a new outlook on life. A smile from a cute barista, a compliment from your boss, successfully framing your brother Chaz for murdering your wife and destroying his family because they're so perfect and your wife always wondered why you couldn't be more like Chaz because Chaz got a promotion at work and bought a new home theater system and also he wears nicer ties. Lester always saw himself as a victim and to some degree that was true though he undoubtedly allowed others to treat him poorly. Now he's simply using that persona to his advantage. So much so that he now genuinely believes that the world owes him anything and everything that he's bold enough to demand. His metamorphosis has been fascinating to behold. The question is, how much further will he actually go? Fargo's depictions of violence have been elaborate, theatrical, and highly entertaining, and in some instances stunning as the series has gone on. This week's episode was no exception. The pan across the mirror-faced building as Malvo single-handedly annihilated the threat from the Fargo crime syndicate was both clever and gorgeously gruesome. It's remarkable how much this series is doing with just sound. That bumpy, drier audio motif returned again this week as Lester uh, stuck it to Hess one last time when he took advantage of the late trucker's wife's greed and fractured morality. This series is one for bumbling cops. It does get a bit challenging to believe that the only capable law enforcement officer in three states is Molly. Those two FBI agents seem fairly green and entirely unfit to face Malvo. At this point, Lorne has become almost mythically untouchable, which leaves me very anxious to see how his story will ultimately play out. Will the creator Noah Hawley be bold enough to allow this villain to triumph, or will Molly be enough to best him? She certainly looked defeated at the conclusion of this episode. Overall, this was another great episode as FX's Fargo nears the climax of its 10-episode run. Finally, we're going to move on to my review of Fargo once again with the episode from this week entitled The Heap. Lester starts to feel like a new man while Wally is being compared to close the case. In the first seven episodes, Fargo was on the clock. For every step Lester took, Molly took two. The shotgun pellet in Lester's hand festered as his infection grew worse and worse, creating a pus-filled time bomb that threatened to explode and send damning evidence all over the room. With each passing episode, the distance between individual characters decreased until people were nearly back-to-back, in some cases quite literally, as the case during the incredible blizzard shootout in the episode entitled Baradin's Ass. And now, once again, Fargo has surprised us. A little past the halfway point in this episode, The Heap, the clock skipped forward a year for what seemed like no real reason at all. Gus was sipping coffee from his from a thermos and working a speed trap, and then the camera panned and he was one year older, living his dream of being a mailman and coming home to a pregnant Molly. For one thing, from a storytelling perspective, it critically alters the structure of the series. Fargo is essentially teaching a master's class in how to really take advantage of the miniseries-slash-limited-event-slash-anthology format. 
that. The show is admirably condensing a three or four season series into ten episodes, and this time jump to me represents the break between what would normally be the penultimate season and the final season. For example, if we imagine Fargo as a traditionally paced series, I'd guess that the end of the hypothetical season three would show us Gus and Molly together a year into the future, as well as where Lester is now and the fourth and final season would start with episode nine, which we'll see next week. Watching Fargo kind of feels like binge watching a carefully crafted Cliff Notes version of an outstanding longer series, or like injecting Fargo concentrate directly into our veins. Noah Hawley has clearly put a lot of effort into focusing on the good parts of his story and rejecting the type of filler that often emerges from a writer's room that's forced to spend five full seasons getting from plot point A to plot point B. If nothing else, this series will make the case for shooting more series in the condensed miniseries, alternative style, or shortened season format, or whatever you want to call it. And that's exactly how this type of TV project should operate. Not as a short season, but as a short, complete show. It's called a miniseries after all. Just picture the back and forth relationship stuff with Gus and Molly that we might have had to suffer through if this story was slated for a five season run. Instead, we've seen all the necessary bits of their adorable relationship, and now we can move on to the next chapter. So let's talk about what happened in this episode, The Heap, and where things are left off. Gus and Molly are together and happy, but she's still smarting over the Lester, Chaz, Pearl, Sam, Hess case, because she knows they got the wrong guy. Obviously, her pregnancy forced a bit of a slowdown in her ongoing investigation, a circumstance that simultaneously provided a believable reason for why the trail has gone cold and raised Molly's personal stakes. A year has passed, but Molly is still making calls to the FBI in an attempt to get more details on the Fargo massacre, and she's still hitting the same dead ends. Agent Budge and Pepper are still slaving away in the file room, and even though I enjoy Key and Peele's humor, I've been wondering how they'll ultimately fit into this mess. I'm guessing that Molly will somehow get through to them, and they'll become instrumental in delivering the necessary files and or information she needs to wrap this thing up. While Molly is stuck in a state of stasis, Lester's been shot out of a cannon into a whole new life. I originally thought the Nygaard's old washing machine would be Lester's telltale heart, a thumping clunker beneath his kitchen floor that reminded him of his wife's death and drove him mad, but it was something much simpler than that, an inanimate metaphor for Lester, an object that was just getting by and doing an ugly job of it. It was a lemon that couldn't be fixed, but this new washing machine, it's a beauty. It washes with confidence and swagger. It's an alpha washing machine that knows how to get what it wants, just like Lester 2.0, the man who got away with murder. New Lester is the 2007 insurance salesman of the year. He bagged himself a hot Asian wife, and in this episode, we saw him send her to bed so he could troll the hotel bar for an easy lay. He's a continuation of the Lester who emerged in the episode Baradin's Ass, the Lester who sat in his hospital bed with a smirk on his face, knowing that he had just framed his brother. Lester carries himself completely different now. His shoulders are higher, his neck is extended, he looks straight ahead instead of up, his hair has that fresh-out-of-the-salon movie star volume, he's more of a presence than just a man. This episode contained a pair of scenes where Lester was commanding a room and we didn't even know what he was saying. The one in the insurance office when Molly stopped by and the other was at the dinner table in Vegas. But Lester's body language was all we needed to see to understand that he'd become a different man. I'm hoping that Freeman and earn some recognition come Emmy time because he's just been exceptional. Lester is on top of the world, or at least he thought he was. In that final scene of this episode, he coincidentally encountered a ghost from his past when he saw Lord Malvo sitting at a booth not too far away from his 
perch at the bar. We saw a look of registered contemplation cross his face, but it didn't give us enough of an indication of how he was feeling, so we don't know what his next move was going to be. We're perfectly suspended in that moment, as Lester faces his biggest test. Has all this newfound bravado given him the guts to confront Malvo about what happened? Does he want to show the man who put him on the path of self-actualization how far he's come? Does he want to punch Malvo in the nose and take that final ascending step of the food chain by toppling the biggest predator of them all? Is he going to scare away with his tail between his legs and undo all the progress he's made. Everything we've seen so far has built towards this moment, and we're about to find out what kind of man Lester truly is. To find that out, join us next week for our discussion on the penultimate episode of Fox, a Rabbit, and a Cabbage. Alright, so guys, since we don't have a voicemail this week, and we'd like you to send one to us on Game of Thrones because the show is so popular, but that hasn't happened yet, so if you guys have time, please consider doing that. And now we're going to move into the closing section. Gordonico's going to tell us what's going down next week. Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with the penultimate episode special, with an in-depth discussion on the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. Then we're going to dive right into the the rundown section with our thoughts on the penultimate episodes of Fargo and Orphan Black and maybe even a few more things but for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com yes and also I advise you guys to check out our spinoff podcast kind of one of the new announcements about our spinoff podcast is that the Helicarrier podcast the show dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has now been set up with its own website that you can access through the ATA page or at its own home address called HelicarrierPodcast.com and also for the Helicarrier podcast that podcast is accessible as its own feed on iTunes if you search the Helicarrier podcast within iTunes so you can get that podcast on its own feed and for ata just continue getting it got our regular enhanced feed or standard feed along with the other two shows we have it's tangent time and come longbow hunters kind of dc nation podcast which is going to come be revamped can come back under a new name also be sure to check out our other podcasts including it's tangent time hosted by michael j petty and Wu s kim where they choose a random or genre topic and discuss it in more detail than would fit in any of our other podcast shows we also have dc nation which as dan mentioned is under renovation to return under a new name and new format in the fall when the podcast returns from hiatus. We also have the back catalog of our Longbow Hunters podcast, The Arrow Podcast, which was hosted by Michael and Wu, and covered the episodes of the first two seasons of Arrow before their final episode at the end of Season 2 when they wrapped up their coverage and the podcast. But the back catalog is still available on our website and iTunes feeds. Also, you can check us out on a new home on the Mix Radio Station. It's an online radio station available with links on our acrosstheairwaves.com homepage. So in addition to our website, RSS feeds, and iTunes subscription locations, you can listen to the podcast on the Mix Radio's Mix Talk feed on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. And our other podcast shows are available at other times throughout the week as well, and we'll let those shows let you know exactly what time they're on the mixed radio station on their shows. There's also the ability to play all of our podcast episodes directly on the website for those of you who are not familiar with the iTunes feeds or how to use RSS feeds or just prefer the convenience of listening to it on the website. So until our next episode, you can contact us on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com or can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Across Airwaves, or join our circle on Google Plus to be kept aware of all our podcast releases and be kept up to date on all the news items from the News with Nico section and all the news provided by our other podcast members. You can also leave a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363 
and give us your thoughts, opinions, or even a review on one of the many shows we haven't reviewed yet. Also make sure to check out our YouTube channel for all the great previews and trailers for all the upcoming TV shows and movies coming out soon. We are also available on Stitcher Radio and you can access across the airwaves through the Stitcher app on any of your mobile phones. We also have a Podcast Box app available on iOS and an Android app available in the Amazon Marketplace if you'd like to buy one of those two apps. Remember, the Stitcher Radio app is free, but you'll have to pay for the iOS and Android apps. So, once again, for other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. Okay, until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys. Have a great weekend. Make sure your head's over this place. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.